At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Well, good morning, y'all. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Phil Danford. I am one of the elders here at Gospel Community Church. I serve on a team of elders, and it is my honor to open up God's holy, inspired, infallible word with you today. So before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you needing your wisdom, needing your presence, God. As we open up this text that is that is that can be difficult, it can be confusing, God, we pray that you would that your truth would leap off the page, God, and that it wouldn't rest in our minds, God, but that it would implant in our hearts, God, and that we would walk away changed, we would walk away moved, we would walk away more enamored and in awe of your glory. In your holy name we pray, amen. All right, so I have the honor of opening up a new book today. Today's new book Sunday are gonna be in the book of Zechariah. So we're, we're continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets, Y'all know last week, Pastor Patton went through the book of Haggai, and now we are moving into the book of Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah is the most major of the minor prophets. It's, it's 14 chapters. It's not really minor. It's a, a long minor prophets. And Zechariah is considered to, by many to be one of the most difficult Old Testament texts to interpret. Many, many people admit that this is a, a difficult text to interpret. There's a lot of visions that seem a little strange. There's a lot of, a lot of varied interpretations of these things, but there, there, is, there is so much poetry. There's so much apocalyptic imagery that points to Jesus. There is so much to be mined out of these visions. So, so first, there is no other prophetic book that is so chocked full of prophecies about Jesus. As you, and you're gonna know that once we go through these pages, you'll see that Jesus is on every single page of this book. Also, Zechariah is quoted more than 40 times in the New Testament because it's obviously messianic. This book is obviously messianic. When we go through it, you're going to see, yep, that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. That prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's quoted from Zechariah. Zechariah talks about the rebuilding of the temple, the first coming of the Messiah, and the second coming more than any of the other minor prophets combined. So we're gonna open up this text with humility, and we're gonna ask the Spirit to illuminate this text and show us what he has for us to see. And then my prayer for us is that we would walk away marveling at the glory of God in these pages. Okay, so, so we, with every new book, we wanna set the background for the book and, and, and talk about where we're at in the story of the Bible um, and, the, and the history of Israel. So Zechariah is a contemporary with, a, with the prophet Haggai. Well, we went through last week. Uh, they came at the same time. And Haggai, he had basically a message of a kick in the pants, right? He said, y'all need to get to work, rebuild the, the temple. And then Zechariah comes to comfort them. They're like good cop, bad cop. All right, so Haggai was the one that was cracking the whip saying, y'all need to get to work. And Zechariah is the one that came in to, to offer them comfort and to show them a vision for the future of Israel. So we're in the post-exilic period, um, the, the 70 years after the exile that, that was prophesied in Jeremiah is over. Okay, they, they went into exile into Babylon and Persia took over Babylon and they were released to go back to their homeland. 
just as it was prophesied, just as God promised. There's going to be two main people leading the charge in this book. So we have Zerubbabel, which is fun to say, Zerubbabel, the governor, and then we have Joshua, the high priest. They're going to be the two main leaders in this, uh, in this book. Okay, so when they arrived to, back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, they were filled with zeal. They're finally back in their homeland. And what did they do? They went to work right away. They started rebuilding the temple. They put their hands to the plow. But then what do we know happens? They slow down, right? We learn from the book of Haggai. We learn from the book of Ezra that they slow down and then they start, they start focusing on building their own houses. They start focusing on building their own businesses. They, they, they turn away from the work of the Lord to focus on their own things. They got caught up in the affairs of life and they stopped fulfilling the mission that they were called to. So they had returned to the city, but their hearts had not returned to God. And these people, they had never even seen the temple in its former glory, the temple of Solomon. They had never even seen it. They had spent 70 years in Babylon in captivity. They had never even seen it. So in the book of Haggai, they call somebody who's actually seen the thing to come and say, no, it was awesome. <laughs> Y'all don't know it. The temple was awesome. they had never even seen this temple. Their forefathers were promised this deliverance. They were receiving the deliverance from, from captivity that, that their great-grandparents were, were, were promised, but their hearts didn't long to obey God. As a matter of fact, they, they gave up work on, on the temple when God had given them a specific mission, and a specific calling. How many of us are like this? How, how many of us feel like this? Do you remember when you first came to Christ? Weren't you, weren't you eager to serve him? You were in every single Bible study. You volunteered for every single ministry. You were annoying people with volunteering for so much stuff. How many of us are like this? But then what happens? Life enters in, right? Life enters in. We get tired. We get tired of serving. We get tired of volunteering every single weekend. We get tired of going to every single function. We get cynical, right? You ever feel cynical? We get complacent and the world trickles in and then we get discouraged. And then what, what started out as zeal for the Lord turns into obligation. I love how Pastor Patton phrased it last week. They, they, they were compliant, but they weren't obedient. All right, there's, there's a way you can be compliant and do what the Lord's asking you to do, but still not be obeying, right? But the Lord wants to pour out his grace on Israel and he wants to pour out his grace on us today. So he's speaking to a weary people and he's saying, now's not the time to grow weary. Now's not the time to grow complacent. He gives Zechariah specific visions and he gives them a vision for his plan for his people. And he's revealing to us today, the same mission. The same mission that he's revealing to Israel, he's revealing it to us today. So if you're taking notes, here's the main point of our text. If you, if you forget every single thing that we talk about today, remember this, return to the Lord because God's plan cannot be stopped. Return to the Lord because God's plan cannot be stopped. All right, let's look at our outline. This is our rough outline. If you're, if you're a note taker and you wanna have some kind of structure for the, for the day, this is, this is what our outline is gonna be. So our first section is gonna be return to the Lord in chapter one, verses one through six. Okay, and then our second section is going to be the visions of the Lord. And that's gonna go from chapter one, verse seven, to chapter six, verse eight. That's not a typo. <laughs> it's six chapters we're about to go through. And then in the, the final section will be the priest and the king who is the Lord. 
which will be in chapter six, verses nine through 15. So in our text, what we're gonna see, we're gonna see a gracious God speaking to a weary people and he's beckoning them to return to him because he has a plan for them. He has a plan to restore the nation of Israel and he has a plan to bless them just as he does for us here today in Gospel Community Church. Return to the Lord because God's plan cannot be stopped. All right, we ready? Ready to get into it? All right, all right, let's start in chapter one, verse one, return to the Lord, okay? In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah and the son of Ido, saying, let's stop right there. Okay, so they had to date everything off of their Persian king, right? They didn't, you notice they didn't date anything off of an Israeli king because there was no king in Israel. They dated everything off of the Persian king Darius or Darius. Also, because of this dating, we know that this comes two months after Haggai. So Haggai, he opens up his book saying in, in the sixth month of, of the, the year of Darius, we're in the eighth month now. Um, and one more thing, I wanted to point this out. I don't want to go on this rabbit trail too much, but this just shocked me when I went through this in the text. So the name Zechariah means Yah remembers. Well, and, and it means God remembers. So what does God remember? God remembers his covenant to his people. I will be your God, you will be my, my people. So his name means God remembers, okay? And then what does his grandfather's name mean? Ido, it means at the appointed time. And then Berechiah's name means God will bless. So their lineage uh, literally means in the Hebrew, at the appointed time, God will bless them because God remembers his covenant. Isn't that incredible? God's sovereignty is all over this text. Okay, let's move on. Verse two, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. He's saying, I'm still here. I'm the same God as before the exile. I haven't changed. I'm still your God and you are still my people. And I'm calling you back into covenant obedience. And I'm calling you back into the blessings of covenant relationship. He's calling them back into relationship with him. All right, so we're, we're all good reformed students in here, right? We, we know that you can't earn a relationship with God through obedience. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good stuff to earn a relationship with him. But if you're taking notes, write this down. Relationship with God is not earned through obedience. Rather, obedience is the sign of being in relationship with God. Okay, relationship with God is not earned through obedience. Rather, it's a sign of being in relationship with God. When you love the Lord, you want to obey him, right? When you love the Lord, you want to obey his commands. The psalmist wrote, your law is sweet like honey on my lips. You love his law and you want to obey it. His law doesn't feel oppressive. You want to obey his law because you know his law brings you to the greatest joy. So of course you want to obey your father. Is he saying that to you this morning? Return to me. Come back to me. Have you forgotten me? Are you functioning as a, as a nominal Christian? You're walking the walk, you're showing up, you're talking the talk, but do you have a relationship with God? Return to your heavenly father. Okay, let's pick up in verse four. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. What's the old saying? 
those who don't learn from history are doomed. That was a pretty pale response there, but yes, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So these people, they're the living embodiment of their exile, right? 70 years and they're coming limping back from their exile and they've already forgotten about God. They're carrying with them the discipline of the Lord and yet they've already turned their backs on God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your view of God directly influences how you respond to his discipline. The way you view God directly influences how you respond to his discipline. So he disciplines the ones he loves, right? We learned that in in Hebrews 12, he disciplines the ones that he loves. So when we get disciplined, we should be like, woo, discipline, awesome. No, we're not like that. But if God is disciplining you, it means he has not left you. It means he loves you. It means he's still growing you. That difficult marriage, that difficult relationship, those strapped finances, Listen, that physical ailment that won't go away that you want to be on the other side of it, God is using it to grow something greater inside of you. But so so often we wanna shortcut it, don't we? It's like, God, get me to the other side of this. Get me to the other side of this discipline. And we fail to see how God is using it to grow something more beautiful, more wonderful than we could ever imagine. So I wrote that two weeks ago. And God's timing is hilarious because two days after that, I found myself in the emergency room with appendicitis. <laughs> uh, I, I had to, I waited in the, the waiting room for six hours. I was in pain. People around me were in pain. It was in the middle of the night. And God brought to my memory, he disciplines the ones that he loves. So I said, all right, God, here we go. What do you, what, why are you doing this? What is this? What is this for? And I got to spend six hours of uninterrupted time praying to my father. I got to spend six hours of him reminding me who I am in him, of him reminding me of his calling on my life. Do you think I would've gotten six hours like that at the house? No, I would never get that kind of time with him. I walked away missing an appendix, but I also walk away just marveling at, at God's timing and how he uses the craziest scenarios to grow me and to show me his love for me. So don't shortcut the discipline. See what God is trying to do. Okay, we gotta move. All right, in verse five, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Okay, so what he's saying is, Now I'm turning from judgment and I'm turning to blessing. Judgment time is over. The the punishment that Israel was supposed to serve for their sin, they've served it. They've served it. And now it's time for him to pour out mercy on his people and restore Jerusalem. Okay, so in light of God's return, what, what Zechariah is doing, he's calling his people to return to God by being obedient to them. So how can they be obedient to them? By rebuilding the temple. Okay, God wants to dwell with his people. Where does he dwell with his people? In the Old Testament, in the temple. He wants to dwell with his people. So he's saying, be obedient to me, build the temple and I will dwell with you. Okay, so that's our setup. That's the setup for what's about to happen next. Zechariah set the stage for what's about to take place. He's called the people of Israel to return to the Lord so that they can experience the blessings of the Lord. And now it's time for the eight night visions. 
Y'all ain't ready for this. The eight night visions. It's about to get weird, y'all. I'm gonna be honest. These visions are incredibly abstract. They're out there and they don't form a nice little neat linear path that, that we would love it to, but there is so much to be mined out of these. I promise you, there's so much to be mined out of these visions. So first, let's ask the question, why does God use visions at all? Why was he not like, all right, Zechariah, take notes. Here's what I have to say. No, he gives them these crazy apocalyptic images. The imagery of these visions described paints a picture in your mind that transcends time and culture. The imagery of the visions described, it paints a picture in your mind that transcends time and culture. So we're 2,500 years removed from this right now. We are 2,500 years after the people of Israel would have heard this. And what are we doing? We're, we're picturing the same things they were. They were like, huh, what does that mean? And we're gonna be like, huh, what does that mean? The same way that the Israelites were. So these pictures in your mind, it transcends time and culture. And there's a structure to these visions. Everyone has a structure to it. The angel of the Lord is gonna be visiting Zechariah in these images. So bonus points to whoever can guess who the angel of the Lord is. A lot of people think it's Jesus uh, presenting himself and prophesying about himself to Zechariah, but that's, that's another sermon. The structure goes like this. Zechariah sees a vision. He doesn't understand it. The angel explains it to him. That's what every one of these goes like. But I, but I promise you, the explanation deserves more explanation, okay? It's not, it's not exactly clear. There's many, many different interpretations. We have, we've, we've read through several commentaries that have many different interpretations, but what we're going to do is discuss the, the interpretations that seem the most clear and most supporting of the theme of the text, okay? That's what we're going to do. We're gonna walk forward in faith, knowing, knowing that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the truth of this text, and we're gonna look at the interpretations that seem the most clear, okay? So without further ado, we move to section two, the visions of the Lord. Okay, who in this room are audible learners? You learn through hearing. Okay, a couple people. Who are visual learners? Most of us are visual learners. Who is neither? You just don't like learning. <laughs> That's me. Um, I've prepared something for the entire class today. Uh, my main man, Patrick McWilliams up there in the crow nest, uh, he, he helped us uh, come up with, with images that are going to help us today. So we have illustrations for each of these visions. Um, that what, we're, what, what we're about to go through is so abstract and so out there that hopefully having a visual medium is gonna help us wrap our minds around what's going on in, in, these, in these visions. So we're not gonna read all of the text. I'm not gonna stand up here and read six chapters to you. So, and all God's people said, amen. I'm not gonna just sit up here and read six chapters, but I'm gonna, we're gonna do a survey of the text. We're gonna do portions of the text that help explain what these visions mean. So you can follow along in your Bibles. The words aren't gonna come on the screen, but I, I, I wanna ask you, go home and read it for yourself. Read through it in full detail. It is worthwhile. But for today, for our purposes, we are going to look at the images and just talk about what they are. Okay, so without further ado, let's look at vision number one, the Lord's horseman and the man in the myrtle trees. All right, so chapter one, verse eight. I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. And then we'll jump down to verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are whom who the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so in our first vision, we see horsemen patrolling the earth and they're reporting back to God. And what do they report back to God? That all the earth is at rest. 
meaning all the nations are at rest, meaning the nations that plundered Israel, happy and ease. They have, they have stolen from Israel, and now they are sitting back fat and happy, and let's see how God responds to that. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry for these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. So the angel who talked to me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Remember that. While I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Okay, so God let these pagan nations discipline uh, Israel, right? He let Babylon discipline Israel and bringing them into captivity. But what did they do? They went too far. He said, while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. So y'all remember Nebuchadnezzar, you remember Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they furthered the disaster. They were too cruel to God's people. So God's anger is stirred and he is going to choose because of his jealousy and his grace to restore Jerusalem. So the restoration of of Israel is in view. It's in shambles right now, but he's saying, I'm going to restore Jerusalem and they're going to be the place of his choice. So the time for discipline is over and the time for grace and the restoration of the nation of Israel is at hand. All right, let's move to our second vision. Judah's oppressors oppress. Woo, it's creepy looking. What is this? All right, let's, let's look in chapter one, verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? And he said, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised its head. And these have come again to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Okay, so we have four horns and four craftsmen. So he says the horns are the nations that rose up to oppress Israel. So who was the first horn? It was Babylon. Babylon rose up to oppress Israel, but they went too far. They were too cruel. So he raises up a craftsman to take them down. Who was the craftsman? Persia. Okay, that's where we're at in this story. Persia has come and taken over Babylon. But we know there's four horns and there's four craftsmen. So let's... let's uh, hypothesize a little bit further and and see who it could be. So if Persia is the second horn, who takes down Persia? Greece. Alexander the Great and the Macedonians, they come and take down Persia. Well, who ends up taking down Greece? Rome. Rome is is the third craftsman that comes and takes them down. But then who is the fourth craftsman? It doesn't say this in the text, but, but just an idea, a thought that I had, the Holy Roman Empire ended up coming about even from a pagan nation, right? They crucified Christ, but then centuries down the road, they became a Christian nation and were the birthplace for the church in Europe. So I would say Christ is the final craftsman. Christ is the one who came and took down the pagan oppressors that oppress God's people. But that's, that's for free. That, that's not what, what's important in this text. What's important is this. Nations rise and fall, but God is sovereign and his plan is immovable. Nations rise and fall, but God is sovereign and his plan is immovable. 
we live in a time of turmoil, just like the Israelites did. They were in a time of turmoil, but we're always in a time of turmoil. Right now, if you turn on the news, you will hear about what if China does this? What if Russia does this? Or literally the turmoil that's in Israel right now that who knows where it's going. But here's what we need to remember. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He uses the nations to carry out his will. The pagan nations he uses to carry out his will. And we can rest knowing that God is about two things. What is he about? He is about his glory and our good. God is using the pagan nations for his glory and our good. As long as he's about his glory and our good, then we can rest. We can rest knowing that God's will will be done and it will be for our good. All right, let's move to our third vision. Sorry, I know, I know I'm, I'm going lightning speed. We gotta go lightning speed today, y'all. So this is Jerusalem unwalled. Jerusalem unwalled. Okay, chapter two, verse one. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are we going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem and to see what its width and its length is. And behold, an angel who talked with me came forward and another angel who came forward to meet him and said to him, run, save that young man. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as, village, as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and the glory will be in her midst. So here we have a picture. Somebody's planning on measuring Jerusalem to, to build walls around it. He's preparing to build walls of protection around it. And the angel comes and says, no, 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 no. Don't build any walls. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Interesting, huh? So is Jerusalem a city without walls? No, they got a wall right now. So what, so what this is talking about is Jerusalem will be a place of peace one day. There will be one day where they won't need walls. It'll be like a, a city that you can leave your doors unlocked at night. I don't think there's a city like that right now that you can leave your doors unlocked at night. But, they, but Jerusalem one day will be that kind of city. How can they possibly be that kind of city? They need to have two things. One, Israel's enemies need to be dealt with fully and finally. There needs to be no potential for enemies for Israel ever. And then two, they need to be reconciled with God. They need to have spiritual peace. When can they possibly have that? Not until Christ comes again. Okay, not until, not until the enemies of God are fully dealt with and not until their sin is fully dealt with, which will be at the second coming of Christ. Okay, all right, let's pick up at verse eight, chapter two, verse eight. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches the apple of his eye, or he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they will become as plunder for those who serve them. And you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And the many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in their midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. And I again will choose Jerusalem. Check this, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Man, if that doesn't get you stirred up, I don't know what will. He has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He's saying, these nations have touched the apple of my eye. For you parents in the room, is your daughter the apple of your eye? Is your son the apple of your eye? What do you do if somebody mistreats them? What do you do if you see somebody shoving your kid in the dirt? You can be like, all right, hold my phone. Daddy's about to go regulate. That's what God's saying it's time to do. 
God's saying, my hand has been stayed long enough. For 70 years, my hand has been stayed and now it's time to act. I'm gonna be roused from my holy dwelling to act on these nations that have abused you. God is jealously coming for his people and he's punishing those who punish them. Okay, let's look at our fourth vision. The reclothing of Joshua. The reclothing of Joshua is awesome. Okay, chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right, at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, Lord, rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Uh, rebuke you. Is it not this brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before him. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Okay. So the high priest in those days literally took the sins of the nation to God. Okay. He took the sins of the nation uh, to God and he, he, he conducted the sacrifices for their sins. I didn't, I didn't mean to mind that, I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he conducted the sacrifices for their sins um, before the father and Satan's accusing him of his sin. And he's, who is Joshua? And he's standing before the father and Satan's accusing him of his sin. And he's clothed in filthy garments, right? The filthy garments represent the sin of the nation. This is, this is surely a picture of the gospel and the expiation of our sin on the cross. Everybody say expiation. The expiation of our sin on the cross. If you're taking notes, the shame you feel and the guilt you carry have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Walk in freedom because Christ has set you free. Every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that's been committed against you has a staining effect. It stains your soul. There's a staining effect of sin. There is a toll of sin. And what happens on the cross is the great exchange. Christ takes your dirty garments of sin and puts it on himself. He bears the full weight of your sin. And what does he do? He doesn't just leave you at neutral. He gives you his pure robes of white. You have his righteousness. When, when God looks down, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Praise be to God. All right, let's move to our fifth vision. The olive trees and the lampstand, all of gold with a bowl. All right, chapter four, verse two. I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. One at the right hand of the bowl and the other on its left. All right, and let's bounce down to verse six. Then the angel said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so the lampstand in the temple signified, it represented the presence of God with his people. That's what the lampstand was in the temple. That's why it's such a big deal that this lamp never went out, that it was constantly burning. If it ever went out, it meant the presence of God was leaving his people. This lampstand had to always be burning. So the question is, he asks the question, what are these two olive trees? Well, it, further down in the text, he talks about that they are the, the, the sons of oil, are the anointed ones with oil. So whenever they inaugurated the offices of king and priest, they would have to anoint them with oil. They are the sons of oil. So what this picture is, a picture of Zerubbabel, 
and a picture of Joshua, the sons of oil. And what is the oil that's flowing into the lampstand? It's the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit. Their ministry will require the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, doing the ministry of God requires the power of God. Doing the ministry of God requires the power of God. So if you're leading a ministry in this room, even if you're you're not leading one, if you are serving in a ministry, if you're pouring a a pot of coffee, if you're opening a door, if you're you're in a a small group, if you're you're leading in gospel kids, if you're even cracking open the Bible with your kids at your house, it requires the power of God. We are created to be a dependent people. Okay, we don't have it all together. We don't have all the answers. We need to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for the ministry of God, okay? All right, let's move to our sixth vision, the flying scroll and wickedness judged. The flying scroll and wickedness judged. Okay, chapter five, verse one. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, a flying scroll. And then and ch- then we, let's bounce down to verse three. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out to what's on the other side. Okay, so the purpose of this scroll was to curse or to judge the land of sin, to remove the land of sin. So it's for all those who swear and who steal. So what does that mean? That, that's swearing falsely against God and it's stealing. So they, they, what they represent is the two halves of the law, sins against God and sins against man. So basically all sinners everywhere, the scroll has come out to cleanse the land of sin. So what this is saying is Israel will be cleansed of their sin one day. And one day God will utterly cleanse all creation of their sin at the second coming of God. All right, let's look at our seventh vision, the flying ephah and wickedness removed. The flying ephah or basket and wickedness removed. All right, chapter five, verse six. Then the angel said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and he thrust her down with leaden weight on its opening. And then let's bounce down to verse nine. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings and they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And then I said to the angel, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when it's prepared, they will set the basket down on its base. Okay, the woman in the basket represents wickedness. All wickedness, she represents wickedness. Wickedness on the final day will be taken to a place of worship for worshipers of wickedness, and they will be removed with it. They're going to the land of Shinar. What is the land of Shinar? It's another name for Babylon. So if you've ever read in, the, in Revelations, you know that it talks about Babylon. Babylon is not a, a specific place. It's a word representing godlessness or the, the anti-God spirit in the land, or, or it represents wickedness. So he's saying one day, sin and the enemies of God will be finally removed and finally fully dealt with at the day of the Lord and the victory of Jesus. Sin and the enemies of God will be removed one day for good. Okay, let's look at our eighth vision. The Lord's army on the move. The Lord's army on the move, okay? Chapter six, verse one. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. 
And let's bounce down to verse four. I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angels answered and said to me, these are going to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. Okay, here we have our eighth and final vision. And what this is, is it's a parallel vision with the first vision. Y'all remember the, the horsemen, the first vision? This is parallel to them. So what they represent is God's sovereignty. He's in control of everything on the earth. They represent his omnipresence, meaning he is all places at all times, and his omniscience, meaning he knows everything. So this is God's sovereignty, his omnipresence. He is in control of what's happening on the earth. Okay, so we've made it. Let's give ourselves a hand. We made it through the eight crazy visions. What, what, what are we supposed to do with these? Okay, how are we supposed to apply these to, to our lives? So as I said in the beginning, these visions aren't necessarily linear, right? They don't, they don't form a nice little neat uh, line with, with five subpoints, and then we, we go to lunch. No, these, these are, are varied and scattered, but what I want to do is I want to try to make some sense out of this, okay? Because they do form a structure, okay? These, these visions create what's called a chiastic structure. That's your $5 word of the day, chiastic structure. It means they're repeated in reverse order. So, we've prepared a chart to hopefully make sense for, of this. Again, Patrick McWilliams, Coming in clutch. All right, so chart number one, this is visions one and visions eight, the first and the last. So the horse patrol goes out to examine the earth and they see that the nations are at ease and God gets ticked, okay? And then the chariot is, is, is setting out to appease God's anger and he represents God's sovereignty, all right? All right, now let's look at chart number two, which is gonna be the second vision and the seventh vision. So y'all remember the horns that, that God raised up to discipline the Gentile or the discipline the, the Israelites and the craftsmen took them down and he, 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 disciplined, uh, he disciplined the pagan nations. Well, where will the final demonstration of God's judgment be over, over wickedness? It's gonna be when the Lord comes back and the land of Shinar where they took wickedness for good, okay? All right, and then we, and then we look in our third and sixth vision. So he, the, the man comes out with a measuring line for Jerusalem and he says, we won't need walls. It's going to be a prosperous, peaceful place. Well, what has to happen before it can be a prosperous, peaceful place? It needs to be purged of its sin. The scroll coming to purge the land of its sin. Okay, and then we have our next visions, the fourth and fifth, which are the central, central visions. Okay, it's God cleansing the priesthood. Remember, he, he cleansed Joshua, gave him new robes of white. And then he's empowering the ministry with a lampstand of oil. Okay, so, so he's empowering his anointed ones to do God's work. Okay, so these visions, they, they, they focus on the history of Israel, right? What's happened already. And then they focus on the future of Israel. One day it will be prosperous and peaceful. One day it will be completely purged of all its sin and its leaders will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what these visions come down to in the central theme of them. But that's not all we get a special bonus vision, okay? So let's go to the third section, chapter nine, or chapter six, verse nine, the priest and the king who is the Lord. We'll look at our, our final vision, all right? Chapter six, verse 11, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, hint, hint, 
the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal armor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be on them both. All right, let's bounce down to verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and shall come to pass, this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Okay, so in this final vision, what we're seeing is a priest made king, a priest wearing a crown as king. Joshua symbolizes the high priest of the people of God. He is the high priest of Israel at this time, but he also symbolizes something greater, something bigger. Joshua is the high priest who is made king. So what this prophecy is doing is telescoping. Right? We, we talked about this in Haggai last week, but it's something that seems like it's nearsighted, but it's actually farsighted. This is a prophecy about something that hasn't yet come, okay? The prophecy is about G- is Joshua, but ultimately it's about Jesus. God promises peace in the land and that those who are far off will come to the temple if they follow this one prerequisite. Y'all remember that? Did y'all catch that? In verse 15, let's look at it one more time. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord. Okay, so we had the vision of the priesthood cleansed. We had the king empowered by God and the priest that is made king. So what this is obviously is a picture of a messianic kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, a messianic kingdom. And it's conditional. This will come to pass and it's conditional. They, it will come to pass only if God's people remain faithful to God and they diligently obey the voice of the Lord. But there's only one problem. We know that the people of Israel will not remain faithful and they will not diligently obey the voice of the Lord. We know that the people of Israel will not fulfill their covenant and not fulfill the law. And we know that they're just like us, right? They're slaves to their sin, just like us by nature and by choice they wouldn't be able to be the type of people that could receive this type of kingdom. They couldn't receive this kingdom of peace and prosperity with no walls and their sin finally dealt with. So what did they need? What do they need to do? God knew what their need was. They needed someone who could be priest and king for them. They needed someone who could fully bear their sins, someone who could judge rightly, someone who had the power to obey God's commands perfectly in their place, someone who had the power to exchange their filthy garments of sin for beautiful robes of white, someone who could plea to the Father on their behalf. Zechariah couldn't see it yet. Zechariah couldn't see what this was, but praise be to God, we can see it. He's calling the people of Israel to rebuild the temple, but Christ was coming to be their new temple. He was going to be their new, te- their new temple. The only one who could save us from our fate was Jesus Christ who bore our sins on the cross. He died the death that should have been ours and he sealed us with the Holy Spirit to live for eternity with him in a new Jerusalem where there won't be walls. There will be no fear of enemies. There will be no shame. There will be no guilt. There will be no more. They will all be finally taken care of at the final victory of Christ the victor. Praise be to God. So that's our text. That's our text this morning. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? What in the, how in the world do we apply this text? Well, first, serve the Lord with the same zeal that you once had. Serve the Lord with the same zeal that you once had. Did you start out 
serving the Lord with vigor only to, only to slow down when things got hard, only to slow down when that relationship got tough. We have so much that the Lord is doing in Gospel Community Church. Is God moving in Gospel Community Church? He's doing big things in Gospel Community Church. There is so much work to be done. Now is not the time to give up. Now is the time to put your hands to the plow. Serve the Lord with the vigor and the zeal that you once had. And number two, discover what God is trying to teach you through his discipline. Don't shortcut that discipline. That, that difficulty in your life, the strained relationship, the difficult job, the difficult marriage, don't shortcut it and say, God, just get me to the end of this. See what the Lord is trying to teach you and do in you because he's doing something in you that is so great and so wonderful. Discover what God is trying to teach you through his discipline. And last, find real peace in your life by submitting to the priest and king, Jesus. So much of our anxiety and so much of our stress so much of our worry is brought about by trying to control things in our life, isn't it? You just feel like if I could just control this, if I can just control this part of my life, then finally I'd have peace. Finally, I'd be able to rest. But here's the thing that stinks about it is that we're not in control of anything. We can't control anything that happens. So better yet, rather than trying to control everything, submit your life to Jesus. Submit your life to the one who is in control and find real peace and real rest for the first time. Submit to Jesus. Return to the Lord because God's plan cannot be stopped. His plan for you, his plan for Gospel Community Church cannot be stopped. So return to the Lord today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, with a, with a text like this that is difficult to interpret, that, that can seem daunting, God, I pray that your truth, that your word would, would implant in our hearts, God. May we walk away changed. May we not walk away the same, God. You have a purpose for our life. You have a purpose for our ministry. God, you are doing something in our lives. You are moving. God, let us submit to you. Let us trust in you. Let us put our hands to the plow and let us glorify you with our lives. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.